Welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that helps you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime. You've got this. This podcast contains general educational information on weight loss for physicians. I am not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace the need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing. Welcome to episode 120 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. Thanks for joining me today. Have you downloaded your free Powerful Weight Loss Beliefs Cheat Sheet? This is a simple cheat sheet that can totally change your approach to weight loss and eating healthy simply by choosing beliefs that actually empower you on your journey. Make sure to head over to weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca forward slash weight dash loss dash beliefs. That's weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca forward slash weight dash loss dash beliefs. Or you can access it from my homepage. Head over there and get yours today. I'm really excited about today's guest. And honestly, it was quite a bit of back and forth between our two schedules to ultimately have her on to be interviewed for the podcast. Today, I'm happy to welcome Karen Thompson, the author of Sugar-Free Eight-Week Program to Freedom from Sugar and Carb Addiction. And we're talking about sugar addiction, as well as her own experiences, both in her initial recovery from addiction, but also her ongoing recovery. And I think that's really important to hear from somebody who's continuing to go through this about what it takes to keep managing themselves, even when life gets tough. And I think a lot of the stuff that she brings up in this interview is things that we talk about on this podcast about being compassionate to yourself, giving grace to yourself, and also prioritizing self-care. And so it was just great to hear it in different words from somebody else. And I really enjoyed meeting Karen and interviewing her. And I really hope that you enjoy this interview. Let's get to it. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Karen. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And what I'd like to do is if you could start just by introducing yourself and letting us all know who you are. Fabulous. Okay, this intro can take quite some time, but like, so just shut <laughs> me off if you need to. So my name is Karen Thompson. I am originally from South Africa, but currently living in Palm Springs, California. And the reason we actually moved here from South Africa was to try and set up an obesity and sugar addiction treatment program, an inpatient program. And that didn't quite work out as planned. But, you know, as life works, like it worked out in so many other ways. But my history and background really is an addiction. And it started with my own personal addiction to sugar and carbs, food, and which ultimately manifested in a drug addiction and alcoholism, which is what landed me in rehab. And when I got into rehab at the age of 24, I was at such a low point in my life. I remember waking up September 13th. I woke up after a huge night, a big binge on alcohol. And I woke up and I just felt horrific. You know, I'm one of those people that definitely is allergic to alcohol where it has a real physical like allergy. And I could never, I could never drink without having a severe, severe hangover that would last for days. And so I remember waking up this morning, I was house sitting a friend's house in the most beautiful part of Cape Town. I woke up 
I like stumbled to the bathroom. I remember like just putting my head under the tap so I could drink some water because I was so dehydrated. And I remember looking up and looking at myself in the mirror and just having this like huge like shock reaction because I didn't recognize the person that stared back at me. And I looked into my eyes and I realized that they were just empty. Like there was nothing in there that made me think that I had any meaning or purpose. I was a complete and utter shell. And it came as such a shock because... It had obviously been like that for such a long time, but I hadn't realized it until that point. And I realized that I just couldn't go on like this. Like I, I had no friends. I'd pushed my family away. I had no job. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I'd been this young woman with so many dreams and aspirations and I would wanted to become a doctor and I'd had the world at my feet and I had all the potential and possibilities to reach these dreams. And yet I woke up and I, I had nothing. And so as I looked at myself in the mirror, I was like... I just don't know if I want to go on anymore. Like, I don't know if I have the courage or the energy to pursue life as it is. Like, I don't know if this is possible. And it was hard. And that day, I honestly made a decision between taking my own life and choosing to live. And I chose to live. I chose to stand up and live. And I said to myself, I will do whatever it takes to get through this. I will do whatever ever it takes to get my life back on track. And so I asked for help. I asked my best friend. I was like, hey, I need help. And she was like, I know. We all know. We've all been waiting for this moment. And she phoned my dad and my dad and I have always been super close. And he was like, oh, we'll send you to a horse farm because I am obsessed with horses. I have been my whole life. And my mom arrived and she was like, absolutely no chance. This child's booking into rehab. Like, you know, we've tried for so many years. Like she's not going to go to some fun horse farm. And so that's what really started my journey of recovery from addiction in all its various forms and all the the different ways that it, it manifested in my life. And I was in rehab for 18 months. So I did primary care, secondary care, tertiary care, and then I did sober living. And it was literally the hardest thing I've ever done. It was the hardest thing to wake up every morning and just not know who I was and have nothing to mask that pain, like not a single substance. Mm. And through being in rehab and really having to look back over my life and we do things like you write your life story and you share it with a group and you get feedback and you have like feelings groups, things that I'd never been able to identify and powerlessness and damages, like looking at where you experience powerless in your life and how that damaged like yourself or your relationship with others and how I put myself in danger and society and, you know, through my own actions and through that process and then working with a counselor, I came to see that my addiction had started when I was four years old and it had started with an addiction to sugar and carbs, this like immense need to soothe myself and not being able to identify how to meet my feelings and needs externally and asking for help not externally I mean like soothing myself by asking my mom and my dad for help or communicating or learning ways and means in which to healthily meet my needs I started turning to food food became my comfort food became my source of soothing myself of celebrating of any feeling that needed to be touched and encouraged like or pushed away I did that with food so I started really like from the age of four I started pushing things down I started pushing things down with sweet foods because sweet foods really you know I know now it, it triggers dopamine response in my brain so it makes me feel good like there's a very basic biochemical reaction that happens and so it makes complete sense but what I did is I stopped living and I started just eating I started eating myself I started eating myself to death essentially because I stopped feeling and I stopped experiencing and I just ate I ate when things got hard I ate when things got good I ate like I would just eat my feelings you know and also like as I mentioned earlier my dad you know he's always been the the one big comfort in my life the big true 
point, like the thing that just like feeds my soul. And, you know, the reason this all started at four is because I went through a very big trauma that, you know, I don't necessarily want to discuss, but it just left me very raw. And, and my dad was a constant, like my grand and my mom withdrew because they were going through their own stuff and they were the other two caregivers in my life. And my dad was the constant and he would go to work every day. And when you would back, oh, I would be like, I can breathe again. Like I can actually breathe because there's somebody here who's stable. And he would bring home a Coca-Cola and a flake. And so a flake is a South African chocolate and it's just, it's just delicious anyway. And so I started um, associating like love and comfort and acceptance with these two food groups, with these two products and throughout my life still. And it's funny, I, um, whenever I need love and comfort, I immediately will be like, oh my gosh, I'll think of a Coca-Cola. And actually like now I can see that I don't need the Coca-Cola. It's the love and the comfort that I need. So it's been interesting how I can associate food with feelings and, you know, and now change the way that I meet these needs. So fast forward a long story short, I got into rehab, really started looking at the underlying reasons for, you know, my addiction, realized it was a food addiction. And the dietitian that I was working with in the clinic was very much about moderation is key. And, you know, eating junk food is important because there's not anything that I should be obsessive about. And I was like, this is fabulous. Like, I'm just going to have, I had to count these blocks and hand in my meal plan. So I would count the blocks to be like Coca-Cola bag of crisps, Coca-Cola flake chocolate. And then I would like have a salad at dinner just to kind of like balance it all out. And I was seen as a huge, like, you know, I was seen as like this poster child of recovery and treatment because I was able to have junk food and not have a big problem again about it. And in retrospect, I'm sure with anorexics, that's probably, you know, the space that they were used to treating it in. But for me, you know, it just fit into my dysfunctional relationship with food in a big way. So I left treatment. I got married. My husband and I, we opened an addiction treatment center in South Africa and we treated, like, so we had a psychiatric facility. And so we treated anxiety, depression, like all the mental health conditions. And then also addiction to any substances, food addiction, eating disorders, alcoholism. And then I was watching TV one day and it was like 2004. And there was this TV show called Carte Blanche in South Africa. And it's a great show. And they always look at really getting to the root cause of like, real issues that are going on in the world. And there was this guy called Professor Noakes. And Professor Noakes was like this very famous sports scientist and like world renowned and not necessarily like people in specific fields around the world will know him, but he's not like a celebrity, I think, around the world yet. And um, he was talking about his journey with low carb, high fat and how he came about it. And he used the word sugar and addiction in the same sentence. And I was like, it was such a light bulb moment for me because for the first time it like all fell into place. I was like, sugar is the addictive substance. It's not only a process addiction, like a food, like an eating disorder where it's about the behavior, but it's a chemical addiction as well because the way it lights up my brain, the way it releases dopamine and makes me feel so good is the same way as other drugs like heroin and cocaine. Obviously, I don't have that high as they do and, and those immediate consequences aren't as immense but like the correlation is there like how can it not be real and so I was so excited and I decided you know what I want to start an inpatient sugar and carb addiction program we have the facility we have the space we're going to do it so I got in contact with Prof Noakes and we started which was at the time the world's first inpatient sugar and carb addiction program that used low carb healthy fats and we incorporated all types of treatment methodologies we did um, one-on-one counseling spiritual facilitation 12-step facilitation exercise cooking classes meditation trauma therapy like a ton of stuff that really like focused on beating sugar addiction and sugar and carb addiction and then from there but look at 
helping people look at the underlying causes. So not just saying, like, just follow this diet and everything will be fine because I can't just follow a diet and everything be fine. Like I need to figure out like why, how, and have very practical tools to, to start to like recover. And from there, I wrote a book and that did really well. And I organized a huge low-carb conference in South Africa in 2012. 15 I don't even remember it all feels so long ago (laughs) and I mean and then we moved to the US and that's really my story in a nutshell which took probably about 10 minutes (laughs) yeah no that's fascinating because so when you were in rehab and they were looking at like the food stuff like you'd sort of made the connection that there's food a food addiction but you hadn't made the connection at that point or they hadn't made the connection at that point that it was sugar as the driving force of the addiction, hey? Totally. I mean, everyone was like, yeah. I mean, when I came out with the sugar addiction stuff in South Africa, after like researching Nicola Venus stuff, talking with Gary Taubes, like really doing research on it, everyone was like, oh my gosh, this is such nonsense. It's ridiculous. Like we had so many people coming after us, trying to shut the clinic down because of what we were doing, reporting insurance companies. It was crazy. So interesting how people get so fired up about food. I know. It's, it's, it's so insane. fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, the moderation piece that you talked about, like that's one of the banes of my existence because it's just, it's fed to all of us, right? That, yeah, you just need to be able to eat moderately. And the reality is a lot of people with obesity, for whatever reason, be it addiction or, you know, all the other things, the concept of moderation doesn't necessarily work. But if you're thinking you should be able to eat moderately and then you can't, then it just builds all that shame and everything, right? Whereas like some foods, it just doesn't work for you to eat moderately for some people. And that's okay. I mean, we live in such a toxic food environment as well, where foods are chemically engineered to stimulate the bliss point, which basically means that when we eat it, it triggers like all these like happy feelings, but it doesn't allow us to feel full. So we are never satiated. So we have no idea how many calories we're eating. So we just want to continue eating and eating and eating to feel good. And it really yeah. tricks our body. So we're being tricked into eating and being shamed into not being able to stop foods that are actually like engineered to be addictive. Totally. The classic one of that that I talk about is like the Costco sized bags of chips, which <laughs> when you look at them, you'd be like, there's no way you could eat that much chips, right? And yet it is really easy because you never get full yeah. and it, you constantly, like there are many people that have found themselves at the bottom of a Costco bag of chips and been like, what happened? And I could eat more if there had been more. Totally. Because it's engineered. Yeah. It is totally. And I mean, talking about big things at Costco, like when I first moved to the US, I went there and I was just like, oh, this is amazing. Like this stuff is so big and there's so much of it. And like you can choose anyway. And I found, oh. my Achilles heel, I found this big jar of jelly bellies Uh, and it was huge. It's huge. I've never seen it again. Thank goodness. But I literally ate my way through that entire tub of jelly bellies. And it it took me maybe like a week because it was huge. Like it was a huge thing, but uh, I did it and I felt horrific. I put on so much weight, but I could not stop. It consumed my thoughts. Like I would be driving the kids to school and I'd be like, oh, I can't wait to get home to eat some of those jelly bellies. Do you know what I mean? Like it was just like this, it was just horrifying. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's so interesting. The the marketing psychology of Costco. <laughs> you do a whole other topic on that. Totally, but, but I love their meat. I mean, they've got some good meat there. Totally. And they're getting a lot of be- like better low carb products too, which is like so nice to see. And, totally. and that helps as long as you skip those middle aisles with all the, the junk food and sugar. 
Tell me, so for somebody listening who's like, okay, I wonder if I actually have a problem with sugar. How do you define it? Or how do you help people figure out if this is an issue for them? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, with addiction, it's the compulsive pursuit of a substance or behavior despite the negative consequences, you know. So let's look at, let's unpack that. Like, what are the negative consequences? So, you know, you may not be lying in a gutter with a needle in your arm, but are you obese? Are you overweight? Like, is your body inflamed? Do you have health issues when you're like, I can't quite put my finger on it? Do you feel guilt and shame when you're eating? Like, even if it's just a little bit of it, you know, so let's look at the consequences. and, And if you're like, you know what, I I'm overweight and I do eat too much sugar. I just can't stop. I feel so ashamed of myself. You know, then you're in that space where you are using a substance compulsively despite the negative consequences. And so despite you being pre-diabetic or diabetic and not being able to stop, like there's a problem, you know, Mm -hmm. if I told you like you have to stop eating broccoli, you know, to lose weight, like no one's going to have a problem with that because broccoli is not like does nothing for the brain. But when you're suddenly super protective over something that actually has no benefit, like eating sugar has no benefit, like we do not need to do it, like then you have an issue. Yeah, I think that's a really good like broad definition too, where I think to identify with like addictive behavior towards food and make changes where you avoid that substance so that it doesn't drive it. I think that can be helpful even if you don't quote unquote meet all the DSM-4 criteria. Though it's actually easy to meet the DSM-4 criteria when you look at them and you unpack them for food. It's actually quite easy. Totally. And the, and the Yale Food Addiction Questionnaire or score, I mean, it's most people would fall in that space for sure. And I think, you know, I don't know what it's like in Canada. I've, ne- I've only been there once, like for a couple of days. But in the United States, like it's so hard. Like there's very, very little real food here. You know, when I moved from South Africa here, I was so shocked. I was like, how is anybody living past the age of 30 with like, you know, the food choices that you have to like constantly like navigate through? And it's all so normal. You know, mm-hmm. I think we're ashamed for eating good food and for cooking at home. And it's just so switched around. It's so, everything's just so the opposite. I was like, it's really hard to be healthy in this country. It really is. Yeah, I think Canada is slightly different, but it definitely is, you know, the, it's just been so many years of the convenience foods being marketed so well right and like you said being engineered where they activate your brain and so it just seems to make sense and it feels good to choose the convenience food and I think we end up with um, generations of people that don't have the skills to actually cook at home or have lost them right like if you don't do it enough it feels rusty and it feels difficult when you go to do it on top of like life's getting busier and busier and busier so it feels like you have less and less time So it becomes just this big skill. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And I mean, the society that we live in is just so warped as well. We're all so busy constantly all the time. And with everything being online, we have no excuse to not be available 24-7. And so I find myself like wanting to order Chipotle for dinner because at least that's kind of healthy, even though, you know, it depends on what you get from there. But, you know, I fall in this trap all the time. And I feel like I'm moving so far away in every area of my life from like living authentically. So, you know, going back to basics, whether it's the way that I think, feel and speak to myself and others to, you know, the way that I cook, the way that I shop, the way that I, 
do you think? So I think it's such an important thing for us to become more authentic in every area of our lives. And that like very basically translates into cooking at home, cooking for my family, setting the table, like having real conversations, like really figuring out how people are doing and really caring. And I know it's going off topic a little bit, but I just feel like addiction can be so put in such a little box, but it affects so much of everything that it's so important for us to just get back to what's meant to be, how we're supposed to live in this world. Yeah, and I think that whole concept of living authentically and actually like living the human experience, it relates to what you were talking about when you were in rehab and you noticed when all the substances were taken away that you hadn't learned how to actually feel that those feelings. And that's so true of almost everybody, I'd say, in North America, that we have some way or another. Some people, it's food. Some people, it's other substances. Some people, it's TV. It's social media of avoiding experiencing those emotions that feel uncomfortable. And we're kind of taught we shouldn't experience those and we shouldn't even have them. Everybody should be happy all the time and skipping around. <laughs> and, and that's part of this journey, like a long-term weight loss journey, is that part of learning how to live a human life that includes negative emotions without covering them up with food. It's a huge, huge skill. And yet it's so hard because essentially we don't learn it even as kids, like what you were saying. Absolutely. I think it's what you've said is just so spot on. And I remember when I was going through my relationship with my husband ending a couple of years ago and I piled on so much weight because it was a protective mechanism for me. Like I had like a real like physical boundary that protected me in a way and also I was just stuffing my feelings and eating and that was really really hard but I think there's so many of us you know weight isn't always just weight most of the time I don't believe that weight is just weight it's not about us just being lazy or slothful or eating too much there's like always something deeper going on and so how do we take off these layers like how do we expose who we really are and accept that like really be the people that accept that instead of looking for this external affirmation because that's a trap I fall into in a big way as well. It's like I want everybody else to love me and approve of me and I completely abandon myself in that time. And when I start abandoning myself and my feelings and my thoughts and my behaviors, that's when I start reaching for external fixes to like soothe myself. Totally. I think that's a million dollar question, right? The Like how do you actually be you and accept you, which is a huge, and despite everything that happens around you, right? Like we're so used to, and this is something I talk about on the podcast a lot, is we're so used to interpreting the things outside of us as some evidence that we're not doing things quite correctly. And then if food is your substance, then you turn to food to help make that feel better if you feel like you're just not measuring up. And so that pursuit of accepting yourself and Loving yourself, even when you're imperfect, even when you trip up. Especially when. Especially when. That's like a a huge skill. And I think it's probably a lifelong journey to work on. Absolutely. And I feel so blessed that I found the 12-step fellowship, you know, and I know like one of the big things in the 12-step fellowship is like, you shouldn't talk about it, but I'm going to talk about it because it literally changed my life. It's a program that I've been working for the last 16 years. I started doing Narcotics Anonymous and then I did Alcoholics Anonymous. And then I, you know, moved into like 
Overeaters Anonymous and now I'm doing Codependence Anonymous, which really is about my relationship with myself, my relationship with others, and most of all, like my relationship with my higher power. And that program has changed my life. It allows me to really look at my part in situations, identify my feelings, my needs, my behavior, see how they can be met. But it, it allows me to take stock of me in this world. So And that's the only thing I can control is my behaviors, my thoughts, my feelings. And so that's helped me heal my sugar and carb addiction, my food addiction, every other addiction, because I realize what's in my control and what's outside of my control. You know, and with that program, obviously, I've learned so many tools that helps me on my recovery. And there's no quick fix. Like, I wish we could just like shake it into people like this is hard work. It's really hard to show up for myself every single day and not just go and buy those jelly bellies from wherever I can get them. You know, it's really hard for me to wake up and be like, I'm going to do my daily reading. Then I'm going to pray and meditate. Then I'm going to do my journal and then I can get on with the rest of my day. But first things first, and this is the most important thing in my life, my recovery. Without my recovery, I have nothing. I will lose absolutely everything that I have. And so journaling, meditation, and prayer, you know, you don't have to be religious, exercise, planning and prepping food, but like really the internal work is the most important work. It's so little about the meal plan and you know, the foods that you don't or do or don't eat. It's about building the relationship with self, which filters into everything else in my life. So how did you make that transition to recognizing? Because that, that self-care, like I'd say most people listening are like, yes, I feel better if I'm doing self-care. And yet it's so easy to let everything else, and I'm guilty of this too, let other things push it away. Like on really busy weeks, okay, I don't have time to journal. You know, I didn't sleep very well, so I'm not going to get up early and do my routine, those sorts of things. But how did you make that mental switch where you're like nothing else happens till this is done that's a really really good question I think it's just through times where I have let it go and just seeing how shitty things end up being like my life is horrible if I don't put these things first and I have a very simple solution and this very simple solution is me waking up a little bit earlier doing my reading prayer and meditation and journaling and then my day's good and my day, you know, and I always say, like, you can start your day over at any time. Like, I can be having a shitty day and I can change it like this. If I take 15 minutes to go back and do my reading, do my prayer meditation, even as a five-minute meditation, write some stuff in my journal, I can start my day over at any time. So my own personal experience has shown me that I have a simple solution that I can implement at any time. And when my life has spiraled out of control, like I know what I can come back to that works. And so my life does spiral out of control all the time. And sometimes it gets really bad, but I am so lucky that I know what I can come back to that's going to make the biggest change in the shortest amount of time. I love that. And I I love that idea of, you know, not feeling like you have to wait till the next morning to start over. And I think this has a lot of like, you can apply this to eating and stuff like that too. But in the midst of the shitty day, saying it's already shitty is it going to get worse if you take 15 minutes and you're like further behind by 15 minutes probably not like if it's already crappy but taking that time and just doing that like mental reset with what you know works I think that's an awesome tool that's an awesome approach 
Yeah. I mean, and it's just like, I'm the queen of like toxic shame, you know, the spiral of shame that I get stuck into very quickly where I'm like, who I am is just flawed and bad and horrible. Not like my behavior sucks or my thoughts and feelings at the moment are a little bit out of it. It's like who I am at my core is just not good enough, not deserving. No one cares about me. Like this real, like I just am just a horrible person. And so getting out of that shame spiral because I can go down really quickly is so important. And really what pulls me out of that shame spiral in such a big way is exactly what I just described now. And like some hardcore journaling and step work, the 12 steps, like the 12 steps are like the most beautiful way for me to live my life. And I, you don't have to be an addict to practice them. And I can apply it to any single problem and get reprieve from it almost instantly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that and having a supportive community, like, I, you know, within the 12 Step Fellowship, like I have this group of women and they carry me at times when I really need to be carried and I carry them at times when they need to be carried. And we love and accept each other as we are. There's this compassion, this empathy that normal people, in quotes, don't really get where there's a harsh judgment of why did you do that? Like, why can't you just stop? Oh, you know what? Sometimes I can't just stop. Sometimes I just mm-hmm. need to be held and loved and not feel like that bad little child who did something wrong again and so you know self-sabotage shows up in a big way through toxic shame for me and I've become very aware of these behaviors and how quickly I fall into them but my recovery means that even though I still fall into these patterns I now have the tools to get out and these moments of falling into the self-sabotage and this toxic shame are getting shorter and shorter and shorter because I do work a program of recovery every single day yeah And I think that's so important is, you know, talking about the toxic shame spirals, so many physicians have this and just live their lives. And particularly if you're a physician who feels like you should be able to eat healthy and you're not, or should be able to manage your weight and you're not, it adds to that toxic shame. And then, but that toxic shame often isolates you too, right? And I'm sure in the addiction world, you see that as well is like, if you're in that toxic shame, then you pull away from that community that might help, or you pull away from the places that can help. And that's why my coaching program, I do stress eating SOS, it's a group program because these women physicians that have struggled with this stuff don't have that community that you're talking about. Like, For most of them, they don't talk about their eating and the struggles and how hard it can be in any other environment. And I think it's so important to have that that community around you, hey? For sure. And also people to be honest and be like, because I think often, and I can only use myself as an example, I would imagine that my life looks amazing. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like to people, like to the people around me, I have the most insane house. I've got two beautiful kids, like you know what I mean? Like I've got a good job. and But I, like most of the time I feel pretty shitty and down and bad about myself. And I think the more people are honest about how it really feels and that like, because social media portrays everything as being so perfect and people having these like perfect bodies and lives and stuff. I think the more we can really be honest about how we are and how we feel, like the better it is for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's super important. Let's talk just more specifics about the sugar addiction side. What's your approach? So when people, if somebody's decided, okay, I need to like get off the sugar, do you have tips or approaches at work for dealing with the cravings? I mean, you know, once like I used to be like, oh, have a tablespoon of coconut oil or whatever. And sure, like there are so many things that you can do to kind of like soothe yourself in another way. But really my big thing is like looking at those feelings, like identifying, because so many of us have these feelings and we've never been able to identify them. So if we can't identify them, how can we meet the need? So really like start journaling about what this feeling is, like what memory does it trigger? Like when in my childhood do I remember feeling this lost and hopeless and alone? 
and now I know that I'm trying to soothe it with food, but really there's a feeling underneath is really that I'm feeling hopeless. And so what can I do to soothe this hopeless feeling that doesn't involve food or external like stuffing things in my face? Like, what can I do? Like, should I go f- have a long bath or do they have the ability to go for a walk to get myself out and moving or like can I even sprint up and down my driveway or can I phone a friend can I share this with somebody and wait until that craving the craving the emotional craving as well passes or soothes so really like journaling like give yourself five minutes to just sit down and write like what is this triggering for me? What does this remind me of? Okay, I think I'm feeling angry. Maybe not anger. Like maybe let's go a little bit deeper. Like maybe it's fear. Okay, I'm feeling really scared. I'm feeling very scared that I'm not good enough. Okay, now what can I do to like soothe that and not use food? So really like getting deep and personal with yourself about what's really going on every moment of the day. You know, when you are feeling like you wanting to like eat sugar and you're craving because you're craving for a reason and there mm-hmm. may be that physical craving especially at the beginning because you're you know your taste buds need to change and stuff and so you know eating something else if you're worried that you may be hungry if you know you're not hungry and this is another type of craving then really identifying what the underlying cause is yeah and I totally agree the fact that most of those cravings have nothing to do with actual food you're craving yeah your brain's kind of attached food as a solution to some other issue that's going yeah. on for you and it's yeah, and- a long childhood pattern, right? So it's not something that like you can solve in a couple of days or a week or two that your, your sugar cravings are supposedly meant to last, but, you know, really breaking through that. And I think there are other things that are helpful, like that I don't necessarily recommend, but, you know, there are other ways like supplements, like you guys, you know, deal with this kind of like the more supplementing or including other nutrients and things in your diet. I think like that stuff's helpful as well. But, you know, for me, it's very, the focus for me very much is psychologically and emotionally what we can do to change and empower. Yeah. Let's talk about your book a bit because you mentioned it very briefly. Oh, but Well, you can buy it on Amazon at, just kidding. Yeah. Tell me what made you decide to write the book in the first place. I didn't actually decide to write the book. It was because I was running this program and I had found, okay, so I was running this program in South Africa. I had found, my mother had said to me, oh my gosh, I found all these like handwritten notes that your grandfather wrote in my shoe closet. And I was like, oh my gosh, like you found these notes that this incredible physician wrote in your shoe cupboard and you're just leaving them in your shoe cupboard. Like I'm, I'm just what is going on? And so my grandfather was Christian Barnard and he did the first human heart transplant. And so all these amazing like handwritten notes about lifestyle and disease that he'd written, my mom had lying in her shoe closet. And so I found them and I went through them and Prof Noakes went through them and we were like, wow, there's some really amazing things here. And so Prof Noakes set up a meeting for me with a publisher to go talk about potentially like putting these into a book. And we went, I went to the publisher and I was sitting down and I was like sharing all my stuff and what I thought we could do. And he was like, yeah, I'm not really interested. I was like, what do you mean you're not really interested? Like, this is one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. Like, are you kidding? Like, like, I don't understand. And he was like, yeah, but I heard you do stuff on sugar addiction. And I'm really interested in that. So can you write a book on sugar addiction for me? And I was like, of course, I can write a book on anything. And so like, I never, you know, in my life, I'm always like, yes, absolutely. I can do anything. And then I'm kind of like, well, maybe can I? I don't know. But um, my initial reaction always is like, yes, absolutely. Like, let's do this. And so that's how it happened is that this book really just kind of birthed itself. It wasn't like I decided like a book should be written. And then we based the book on the eight-week program, the eight-week outpatient program that we were running at 
our facility in Cape Town and we got stories from people and feedback and you know the book really focuses on empowering body mind and spirit so even though we have meal plans and like have a chapter on what sugar addiction is and what it does to the body the biggest change is really in working the program like doing the journal exercises like putting in the effort to get to know yourself and yeah so it's an eight-week program to help you beat your sugar and carb addiction nice and the title you still haven't said to your book's title (laughs) (laughs) it's the longest title in the universe it is called sugar free eight weeks to freedom from sugar and carb addiction by karen thompson nice like you said it's available on amazon i know quite a few people listening to this have probably read it already but i I think it's it's a good resource if, if you are identifying with this concept of sugar or food addiction what other sort of practical tips do you have for people? Is there anything else that we haven't talked about if they're working on this? Or I think exercise is so important. And it's not even like what type of exercise, but like just getting your body moving. I think that like so often, even with me, when I have such stagnant emotions and I don't feel like anything can shift them, no amount of journaling or whatever, or it makes it a little bit better, but there's something else that needs to move. Like if I move, like if I physically move my body, things start moving, like feelings start moving, thoughts start moving, things just start moving. And then also like I have a tendency to suffer from depression and anxiety. One of the biggest tools for me in combating that or really trying to manage it is to do exercise, to make it a priority. And I, you know, even when I'm feeling super lazy and I really don't want to do it, I found stuff that I enjoy, like roller skating. I'm, you know, I think I'm going through a midlife crisis, but I go roller skating down the road, like this 40 year old woman, like on her purple and pink roller skates. Like I go roller skating. I do stuff that I enjoy. You know what I mean? Like I horse ride now. I bought myself a horse because I have a great job and I do well. And so I deserve it. Like, and so every single day in, in the afternoons, I go horse riding and that's my time with myself where I get to explore things that, you know, just bring me so much joy. And so exercise doesn't have to be the traditional form of exercise. Like you don't have to go sit in the gym for exactly one hour and stretch and do the workout and then stretch again. Like you can decide what your exercise is, but just do it and do it consistently and make time every single day, even if it is only once again for 15 minutes where you move your body. Mm-hmm. And I think the intent of that exercise really matters too, right? Like the intent you're talking about is not, I need to exercise every day so I yeah. lose weight. The yeah. intent is that exercise helps your brain and helps your emotions so that then you can eat healthy and yes. live a better day and just feel better overall to make all the other stuff fall into place. Absolutely. And then the other big thing for me was body image. Like I hated my body, like from the age of four, like I was just at war with myself and the way that I looked. And I never felt that I was beautiful or pretty enough or that I measured up to anything externally. Like I came from a really beautiful family. And so I always felt like this ugly little duckling. And, you know, weirdly enough that I got into the modeling industry, which is like my worst nightmare from the age of 16 until the age of 24. I was constantly like feeling like I was just ugly and fat and horrible and I externalized like so much of like this internal like all these like internal feelings that I was struggling with like it, I just started punishing my body and that's obviously part of the sugar and carb addiction as well but I have this I'm such a perfectionist where I want my body to be so perfect and so I'll spend like I'll every morning I have this room full of mirrors which is a nightmare but I'll look I will still find myself like looking in the mirror and being like only focusing on the negative I'll be like you know I have these two stomach muscles that like split at the bottom because I birthed two beautiful children (laughs) I'm like fixated on these like muscles and then I'll be like and I have no butt but when I was like modeling it was cool to have no butt you know it was like in the 90s and 
I'll find myself just being so fixated on my body and just like picking it apart and completely not focusing on any gratitude for what it can do. And so shifting that has been huge, you know, just being like, wow, buddy, you have been through so much. Like if I had treated you, I mean, anybody else, the way that I treat you, I'd be locked up. Like I'd be in jail because I have been horrific to you. So thank you. You know, thank you for all that you are. And thank you for your bumps and your bruises and your scars because each one of them tells such a special, beautiful story. So coming at myself with a lot of compassion, but this is so hard. And this is definitely something that I'm working on a lot now because, you know, I really, I'm really hard on my body. I'm really still, and this is hard to admit, like very focused on physical appearance. Like it still has like this old like meaning and purpose. Like I how I appear to the outside world is what people are going to find most value in. And so like, this is hard. Like this is something that I'm struggling with in a big way right now. Yeah. And I I think that body image stuff is something I talk about a lot with the physicians I coach. And what we talk about is like, when you do have extra weight and you're wanting to lose weight, it's so easy to think that all that body image stuff gets better if only the scale measured a certain number or you fit into a certain size of clothes. And we talk about how it doesn't. Like if you have that negative way of viewing your body, it'll view it negatively. I think that's a fantastic example that you just gave that, you know, you can be at a lower weight, you can be a former model and view your body completely negatively if you don't watch your brain, if you don't actively work on focusing on the positive and the the benefits of your body. I think that's really helpful probably for people to hear you talk about. Oh my God. I mean, I have been like this weight. I've been 15 pounds heavier. I've been 30 pounds heavier. I've been 15 pounds lighter. And my feelings don't change about myself. Like I'll just find different ways to pick on myself. Oh my God. Yeah. I think that's such a important place to do with the work too. Because that goes into everything. Like the other self-worth and shame spirals we talked about. That body image stuff is totally tied to that. And I talk about it. It's like a weight that you carry around in the day. If you're thinking that you look horrible, you go through every single interaction in your day feeling like you look horrible. Yeah. And it's like this additional stress that you put on yourself. Totally. Uh, Where can people find you if they want to learn more or find you some books on Amazon, but tell us more about where people can check you out. Okay, so I am just getting into setting up my sugar-free stuff again. So I have just launched my new website, which is just really a sugar-free revolution sales page so it's sugarfreerevolution.com you can find me there i'm on instagram probably the most active sugarfree revolution again on facebook sugarfree with karen thompson something like that and then i'm working on various things right now i've just i've written a kids sugarfree book oh, nice. with a pediatrician from san diego california and so that will, we're going to self-publish through amazon probably in the next couple of months it's really just a very direct book on like how to help your kids be healthy because I feel like we're stuck in such a horrific time right now and in general that it's just like very straightforward and some really beautiful easy recipes on how to get your kids to eat real food so that and then I'm also working on an app with a I'm collaborating with a company called Sunset Health on an app which focuses on burnout and so we're going to beta test this burnout it's a cognitive behavioral therapy app aimed at burnout and I'm going to ask people to come and beta test it for me I need like 200 people to do that and it gives you daily prompts on what you can do to change your behavior and so it's almost like your little app coach kind of thing and so if that works and it's successful then we will change it into a whole big like sugar addiction body image self-love app so yeah those are really my big projects at the moment that sounds awesome i think that sounds like such important work all of that the kids the 
burnout, all of it is so important, especially right now, like with this past year of pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Karn. It's been a real pleasure. Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Yeah. So many great things in that interview. I really enjoyed that. And I hope that you found a lot of helpful things to take away to apply to your own journey, whether you identify with the concept of sugar addiction or not. I think there was a lot of really helpful information in that interview. Send me your thoughts, info at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca. I love hearing feedback on the different episodes and will happily respond to you. And if you are enjoying this podcast, please take the time to hit subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you could take the time to leave a review, I would really, really appreciate it. It does help the podcast get found. All right. Have a fantastic week, everybody. Bye-bye.